Welcome to Silicon Bytes, episode six. In this edition, we're going to be looking at a number of stories from the first two weeks of March that you may have missed. They come from publications like the Moscow Times, The Economist, and The Financial Times. We're also going to point you towards some longer articles, which contain some really interesting deep dives into the Russian mindset and the Russian war in Ukraine. And of course, as always, links will be provided in the description of this video. You'll also notice that throughout this edition, we will also be featuring NAFO memes to keep you entertained while we are dissecting the news stories. Now, the first story is about Russia's second silent war against its human capital. This is from the Moscow Times by Andrei Kalesnikov, and it's from the 4th of March of this year. At the end of last year, President Vladimir Putin ordered the government to draw up a package of measures to increase Russia's birth rate and life expectancy. He also expressed bewilderment at the falling birth rates in a number of regions. It seems, however, that Russia's policies, economic policies, are at complete variance with this stated aim of stabilizing the falling birth rate and rescuing its demographics, quite apart from the horrific slaughter of Russian men in Ukraine. There are also plans to change the ages of military service of conscription, changing it from 18 to 21, raising the lower age limit and raising the upper age limit from 27 to 30. The proposals put forward by Russia's disastrous defense minister, Sergei Shaigu, would have an absolutely devastating impact on demographics. The article goes into detail here, saying that the effect on the labor market will be severe. Conscription at such a productive age of adult men would have the effect in the labor market of putting huge pressure on trained and skilled resources, but also it would take people out of not just the economy, but society at an age when they're much more likely to actually start families. The impact could be severe. For instance, the article suggests that three to four million people aged between 20 and 40 over the next decade. And the article suggests that this could have a huge impact on birth rates, potentially reducing the number of new people created in Russia over the next decade between 2020 and 2030 by three to four million people. And of course, we know Russia cannot afford any more decline in its population, especially given the horrific losses they're experiencing in Ukraine. And the next story exactly illustrates why partly Russia has a demographic problem. And that's because it does not treat its population as citizens or as individuals. So this story again from the Moscow Times says, conscripts who complained to Putin wiped out in a battle, again from the 4th of March. Nearly all the Irkutsk region conscripts, whose video appeals to President Vladimir Putin decrying their lack of training, made headlines in late February. They were then sent to the front. One has to wonder whether they weren't purposefully sent to some of the more dangerous parts of the front. And that entire company that made the video are now believed to have been wiped out in Ukraine's Donetsk region, on March the 1st. The unit's members came to prominence in February when 
its recently mobilized reservists made three video appeals to the Russian president, complaining of being made subordinate to officers from the Donetsk People's Republic, the self-proclaimed separatist entity whose territory was annexed by Russia in February 22. The men complained of being sent to storm Ukrainian positions with insufficient training, a total lack of military intelligence as well. They claimed they'd been warned that they would be shot if they refused to follow orders. So here's the dilemma for the Russian soldier. If you complain and refuse to fight, you'll be shot. If you complain, you'll be deliberately placed in the most dangerous part of the front to silence your voice and to act as a warning to others. And the last story from the Moscow Times, we're going to touch on this briefly because it is a deeply unpleasant story. Russia's Wagner Mercenary Group launches Youth Club in St. Petersburg. As if Wagner and Prigozhin couldn't get more foul, insidious and frightening. Apparently, the group has launched a youth club aimed at fostering patriotism and preparing young Russians for military service. The club, called Wagnerunek, or Young Wagnerite, is based at the Wagner Center, the group's glass-fronted headquarters and technology center that opened in St. Petersburg in November. Wagneronek is headed by recent high school graduate Alexander Tronin, a former member of St. Petersburg's youth parliament and currently has 60 members. So the article goes on to explain that they plan to open these daycare and educational centers for young children in multiple Russian cities, getting cannon fodder young, ensuring they can brainwash future soldiers a generation ahead of time. Now, this is a deeply disturbing and I think sort of disgusting story. Um, and it is a wonder that there haven't been any careless smokers in the Wagner Center. I guess they are on the lookout, though, for that kind of accident. Next, we have a couple of stories from The Economist. Russia's sanction dodging is getting ever more sophisticated. How banks are greasing the wheels of the growing grey trade. This is from The Economist on March the 2nd. On February 24th, America marked the anniversary of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine by freezing the assets of a dozen or more Russian banks. Britain and the EU also lengthened their blacklists. Part of the reason for tightening sanctions, again, is to close loopholes in the existing regime. And Europe goes further and vows to punish those betraying Ukrainians. But as joint research by The Economist and source material and investigative outlet suggests, Russia's sanction dodging is only getting more advanced, especially when it comes to flogging the oil that fund Mr. Putin's war. A month ago, Europe imposed an import ban on refined Russian oil, having already banned purchases of the country's crude. To keep the global supply flowing while limiting Mr. Putin's revenues, the EU allows its shippers, insurers and banks to continue facilitating Russian exports to other countries so long as the oil is sold below a price set by the G7 group of big economies. But Russia's petroleum has not become as much of a bargain as hoped. Most countries outside the West have not introduced their own sanctions, allowing the rise of an army of shady middlemen beyond the reach of Western measures. The investigation tries to put together the pieces of the puzzle of how this grey trade in Russian oil 
and assets is actually being formed. And our second story from The Economist, Ukraine finds stepping up mobilization is not so easy. Military recruiters are accused of rough tactics as they try to boost the headcount. This article tells the story of Ruslan Kubey, who was surprised to receive a draft notice in late January, registered as seriously disabled since childhood. He is missing both hands and falls under a list of automatic exemptions from service. Even more surprising, however, was the reaction of officials at the local registration office near Lviv. Far from admitting the error, they doubled down and declared him fit for service. And it goes on to detail other instances of heavy-handed tactics by Ukraine's recruitment services. Now, there is a trend, of course, to, in the Western media, not print stories that can be uh, divisive or critical of Ukraine. There is a trend, of course, in many Western media outlets not to publish stories that are overtly critical of the Ukrainian government or which point towards corruption or administrative failings like the ones outlined in this story. And that is often a criticism leveled by opponents of the war, not just at the West, but Ukraine itself. What they fail to notice, however, is that Ukraine has a free press and publications like the Kiev Independent and others are actually far more critical of the Ukrainian government and often administration than we in the West ourselves are. And it's worth noting that a similar level of internal criticism and debate is absolutely not being had in Russia. But this story is an interesting one. Clearly, Russia is gearing up for a long war. Ukraine is doing the same. And that requires huge demands in terms of men and materials. And there will be challenges, of course, in getting the number of able bodies required. There will be administrative errors. There will be issues. We have the same problems in the West when it comes to bureaucracy and low-level corruption and inefficiency. And we have to bear in mind as well that when they are recruited, of course, Ukrainian soldiers are placed in danger, but not without training and not without equipment. And the ratio of losses is believed to be far more advantageous for Ukraine on the front line than it is for a Russian, for a so-called mobik or mobilized conscript who goes to the front without training, without the proper equipment, and often those untrained and ill-equipped troops are placed out front in waves, in human waves of cannon fodder, preparing the way for more seasoned troops. But this is a story that we'll have to keep our eyes on as the months roll by and this terrible war takes an even deeper toll on Ukrainian society. And the last story from The Economist, the war in Ukraine has made Eastern Europe stronger but will the EU's new balance of influence endure? This is from February the 27th. The article states, countries on the eastern fringe of the EU feel their time has come. A tectonic shift to the east is taking place. Power is rapidly seeping from the old Europe, delegitimized, having been so wrong for so long about Russia, in favor of countries now bearing the brunt of President Vladimir Putin's aggression. The war is an opportunity for fresh thinking and new leadership. And this is something that we discussed recently with Arthur Rehi, and that is the huge investment in Poland's new military equipment, military might and training. We are seeing a decisive shift both in politics and in military power from the west of Europe towards the east. 
This is also recognized by the increased focus the UK is placing on relationships with both Eastern Europe and Northern countries who, like Finland, Sweden, Denmark, have long been aware of the threat from Russia, both because of their proximity to the country, but also because of the historic conflicts that have taken place many hundreds of years ago between, say, Peter the Great, Sweden, and the Russian Empire. Now, I've got one story here from the Financial Times, and then that finishes up the short stories. And this is just a link, really, to point you towards some really interesting information. So the Financial Times has published a series of maps that track Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is produced by the Financial Times' visual and data journalist team. And the article states, on the February the 24th of last year, the world awoke to news that Russian tanks had rolled into Ukraine from the east and the north. Troops had been massing on Ukraine's borders for months, and Russian leader Vladimir Putin had made a series of fiery speeches on the long-running conflict in the Donbass region. There were fears that the war would be a short one, with Ukrainian troops potentially overrun in a matter of days. But that was not to be the case. And this article then lays out a series of maps showing the various Ukrainian victories, the Battle of Kiev, which was absolutely decisive in rolling the Russian invasion back and limiting it to the east and the south. And there's lots of fascinating data and charts if you follow that link. And here are a couple of stories. I'll just read the headlines of them because I think they're quite interesting. And these are stories that are going to be unfolding over the next couple of months. Again, they're from the Financial Times. And there are a couple of lines that you may have missed. The first one, Ukraine asks EU for 250,000 artillery shells a month. Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov seeks big boost to ammunition supplies to ease the critical shortage at the front line. This is something we're hearing more of, not just on the Ukrainian side, but on the Russian side as well. And I think as we move towards the spring and the spring offensive, we're going to hear a lot more about the deficiencies in ammunition and equipment that potentially could limit the speed of any Ukrainian advance. Another story, US launches new crackdown on Russian sanctions busting. Well, this is very similar to the story we went through a little bit earlier. There is a push by three agencies as it comes amid fears that imports flowing from UAE and Turkey are fueling the war in Ukraine and providing Russia with much needed funds. And another, Blinken meets Lavrov for the first time since the start of the war. The US and Russia's top diplomats speak for 10 minutes on the sidelines of an acrimonious G20 gathering. Now, we can only imagine what words were exchanged. 10 minutes in the company of Lavrov is probably uh, something like a lifetime. Uh, and we can only imagine what, uh, what transpired there. In fact, we may never find out. And finally, this is quite a complicated confusing story. Russia on alert after reconnaissance group crosses over from Ukraine. Vladimir Putin convenes Security Council and cancels planned trip in response to border incident. Well, if you followed that story in more detail, you'd have found out that actually it wasn't a Ukrainian reconnaissance group. It was a Russian far right, has been described as a sort of neo-Nazi, but is trying to bring down the Russian government and he is doing it tolerated, I believe, from Ukrainian soil. He does not 
necessarily represent the Ukrainian government in any way. And there is a lot of debate about whether this incursion into Russia was actually sanctioned or whether the Ukrainian government even knew anything about it. So quite a complicated story. There's lots of videos, memes and debate that you can uh, find out further about this online. And YouTube's got quite a bit of coverage of it, too, because of the sensational nature of that story. Now, here's some long articles which I'm going to point towards. Here's some long articles which I'm going to provide the links to. I'm not going to go into huge detail about them, uh, but they are some interesting stories, which if you do want to dive deep into, I would definitely advise you to follow the link. And this one is from Yura Maidan Press. The West urgently needs a new strategy. Time is working to Russia's advantage. Now, the source for this story is Hans-Peter Midton. He is a naval specialist who was educated at the Royal Norwegian Naval Academy. He is a naval expert who was educated at the Royal Norwegian Naval Academy and the Norwegian National Defence Command and Staff College of the Norwegian Defence College. And he comes up with an interesting idea, and I strongly advise you to follow his regular papers on the situation in Ukraine. He publishes these reports on LinkedIn. They are absolutely fascinating and are full of detail. But here he says that Russia could not defeat Ukraine militarily, is almost certainly aware of that, and that is likely not their plan anymore. The longer the war drags on, the more likely Russia is to achieve victory because of the mounting economic damage to Ukraine. If the West wants Russia to lose and Ukraine to win, it needs a new strategy now. He goes on to detail that in economic and military terms, how the war needs to be speeded up, what equipment and tactics need to be provided, and goes into more detail about what the economic strain, the damage to the economy could produce. And of course, the longer it goes on, the more it requires Europe and the US to provide in terms of material and resources to support Ukraine, which potentially will put a strain on public opinion. But there's one thing that only gets a glancing mention and perhaps might be the most significant reason that the war needs to be speeded up to Ukraine's advantage. And that is that in 2024, there's a US election. And this week in the press, there's been quite a lot of coverage about the leading two Republican candidates, Ron DeSantis and obviously Donald Trump, both being seen to parrot Kremlin narratives and to being far, far cooler on supporting Ukraine than Joe Biden and the Democrats are. So this is an incredibly important topic. And please do read more about it because there's an incredible amount of detail here. And I think this idea of a resounding defeat of Russia, a faster victory for Ukraine, not only will that save lives, but also it may be the only way that Ukraine can achieve a victory. Because the longer it drags out, the harder it'll be to achieve a clean victory and Russia will be able to carry on its hybrid informational and economic warfare to grind Ukraine and to an extent Europe down. Another topic we covered a lot on the channel is Russian imperialism and the need to decolonize. If we are to have a stable, prosperous Europe, if we were to avoid the kind of 
horrific conflagrations that we're seeing at the moment, then only a full decolonization of Russia, an abandonment of that imperial lust that seems to drive so much of Russia's aggression needs to happen. And that is the focus of the next article in foreign policy. This article is an expert's point of view on the topic of decolonizing Western Russia studies. And it's by Artyom Shaipov, a member of Aspen Institute's Next Gen Transatlantic Initiative, and Yulia Shaipova, an advisor to the Ukrainian parliament. They asked the question, why has it taken a war of conquest for experts to recognize Russia's nature as a vast imperial enterprise? And this article begins with a picture of Siberia shown in a 19th century painting, Yermak's Conquest of Siberia. And it depicts a Russian attack on Siberian Tatars. As a fact of history, it says, and problem of contemporary geopolitics, Russia's nature as an imperial power is uncontrovertible. After World War I, the Russian Empire avoided the permanent dismemberment that befell other multi-ethnic land empires, such as the Ottoman Empire and Austria-Hungary. The Soviet Union not only reconquered most of the non-Russian lands that had declared independence from Moscow in the wake of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, including Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, but even expanded the empire in the course of World War II, annexing Moldova, the western part of Ukraine, and other lands. Nor did the Soviet Union participate in the decolonization era. Even as the French and the British empires were being dissolved, the Soviet Union was expanding its colonial reach, tightening its grip deep into Eastern and Central Europe with bloody crackdowns and military actions. Well, this is a long and fascinating article. And throughout this war over the last 12 months and the resurgence of massive Russian violence on the territory of Europe, this is a question that has been nagging me and many of the people that I've been speaking to. And that is, how did we give the Soviet Union a pass? How did we not see it for the imperialist venture that it clearly was? The article goes on to also examine Russian literature from Pushkin to Putin and the deep thread of imperial ideology that winds its way through classical Russian literature. This part of the article is written by Volodymyr Yermelenko, one of Ukraine's foremost cultural figures and philosophers. And it goes into more detail on this idea of Eurasia. And it strikes me that Russia is an empire in need of an idea. It's an impulse to expand, control, coerce, and dominate that understands to do that in the modern world, it requires some kind of geopolitical clothing, some kind of idea, even if it's wafer thin, pathetic, unbelievable, and that most people don't buy into it. It still needs some fig leaf of ideology that its propaganda can spin and sell to parts of the world, like the global south and in Africa and in other countries which still have some kind of receptivity to Russian narratives. Serbia, Hungary are obvious places. But calling out the emperor that has no clothes, pointing at Russia and Russian aggression and labelling it as imperialistic, as genocidal, is the only way to stop them 
from getting away with it once again. And this article has so much more detail in it, and I thoroughly advise you to read it. Again, the link is included below. And here's a piece which I really like. It's unapologetic, well-informed, and beautifully argued. It's an opinion piece on Ukraine from the Financial Times, and it's written by the editor Gideon Rackman. And the article starts by taking a dig at someone who thoroughly deserves it, Professor John Mearsheimer. Gideon Rachman states, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made an unlikely celebrity of Professor John Mearsheimer. His 2015 lecture, Why is Ukraine the West's Fault?, has now racked up 28 million views on YouTube, which unfortunately puts this channel's viewing figures to shame. It seems that spurious nonsense will always have a larger audience than sense and reason. In that lecture, and in later articles and talks, the University of Chicago academic argued that the West had provoked a war in Ukraine by pursuing policies that Russia saw as an existential threat. In particular, Mearsheimer has repeatedly argued that it was folly for the US to promise to bring Ukraine into NATO. He predicted that Russia would not tolerate this, and that the end result is that Ukraine is going to get wrecked. That sentence has, of course, made Mearsheimer look prophetic. But it is also true to say that he's far more popular in Moscow and Beijing than he is in the corridors of power in Washington or Brussels. And there are some disturbing accusations as well as to the kind of company that Mearsheimer has been keeping. For instance, he recently held a meeting with Viktor Orban, Hungary's prime minister, a champion of illiberal democracy, and who is often seen to be parroting Kremlin narratives. Rather than being cowed by these criticisms, the professor seems to enjoy his notoriety. And this is the problem I have here. Mearsheimer is an intellectual grifter. He has come across an angle that is getting him attention. And even though that may diverge from the facts, it may diverge from a more complex and nuanced argument, the fact remains that those who make simplistic assertions, those who drive confrontational points of view, get people's backs up, get an audience. It's how social media works. And it's how some academics have chosen to behave in the social media environment. But some of his points of view are also quite complex and interesting. He's argued that Ukrainian nuclear weapons were the only reliable deterrent to Russian aggression. And now, of course, many Ukrainians would not disagree with that. The article lays out Mishima's points of view and dissects the foundations of them and ultimately comes to the conclusion that his arguments are rooted in a different age. And this is what we see in Kissinger and others as well. They formed their worldview during the Cold War. Everything is interpreted through a large geopolitical lens. They also tend to see Russia in terms of great power politics. And they also see Russia as a great power and not as the thuggish mafia state that it's become a state that is greatly reduced in terms of its ability to project power, and even a state that has less international political and moral power than perhaps the Soviet Union was able to project as a counterweight, a so-called anti-imperialist in the days of the Soviet Union. Now, that may be nonsense, but it's a narrative that worked well with many countries. What we have now is a pure 
mafia-driven state of thugs. And yet Mearsheimer and others elevate the country to be a worthy adversary for the US. Whereas if it wasn't for Putin's aggression and violence, the US, Europe, would barely be paying any attention to Russia at all, or to these academics either. And let's take a short foray into clown world of Russian propagandists. And one of our favorite commentators on Russian propaganda, Julia Davis, in her excellent Russian media monitor, has written a really interesting article in SIPA. Now, normally, morality does not get in the way of what propagandists say, and their comments in no way tend to align with the moral and political standards that you would hear in European media. But occasionally, you get flashes of insight, a realization that they may themselves realize what a precarious position they're in. Julia states, it occasionally occurs to Putin's mouthpieces that they may one day face charges in a war crimes tribunal in The Hague for the crimes committed by Russia in this war and the encouragement and support they provided to those crimes. In effect, they are enablers of the genocide that we're seeing against Ukraine's population and culture. In their moments of thoughtfulness, when perhaps it looks like Russia is not doing well. And these propagandists fear that one day this aggressive state that they support may not exist in the same form to protect them and shield them from justice. And with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Russian propagandists are having an absolute field day. They are rejoicing at American bank failures and hoping the entire dollar system will finally crash, admitting and admitting that they've been hoping and waiting for that for the last 20 years. Now, for those of you perhaps were not watching the news closely or paying attention in 2008, this is not new. During the great financial crash of 2008, it has been reported by many economists that behind the scenes, Putin and Russia were advocating to China to withdraw support funding and loans from the US as a way of crashing the international financial system. It's reported that China was horrified and refused to go along those plans, absolutely incredulous as to why Russia would seek to bring down the Western financial system, which of course we know China at the time and to an extent even now is dependent on large volumes of international trade, the system of resources and finance that flows around the world and keeps both the Western and the Chinese system going. And this really highlights, I think, how far Russia is now outside of that world system, or at least perceives itself to be outside of the world economy and independent from the impacts of any financial crisis in the West. In reality, that's unlikely to be true. And the force of sanctions and the influence of isolation will eventually get through to the middle classes in Russia's large cities. And finally, two more characters on Russian state media, both calling for absolutely barking mad and horrific outcomes to the war. This potato on legs calls for another mass migration crisis to put strain on Europe. He suggests that Russian offences in Ukraine could cause new waves of 
Ukrainian refugees to flee to Europe and put pressure on the economy and reduce Europe's willingness to support Ukraine's interests. It didn't work the first time. There's no reason to think it would work and again. And this character who turns up in his uniform with medals earned from doing goodness knows what, says that Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities. Well, that's certainly true, because when Kiev was already a great civilization, Moscow was nothing but a swamp. Moscow was nothing but a clump of trees. He goes on to say, if they can't have Kiev, if they can't control it and own it, then they will turn it into the ruins. Then they should turn it into ruins. And Russia's flag would be there to sit atop those ruins. And if they can't win the war, if they can't replace Ukraine's government in Kiev, then those ruins are what they should arrive at in terms of their strategy. They should be the king of the ashes. And this tells us something about the pointless, nihilistic nonsense that is piped out of Russian TV into people's minds daily. Some believe it, some don't. Many pretend it's not happening. And that perhaps is the most dangerous position. Because if nothing changes in Russia, if people don't revolt against these toxic lunatics, these grifters and liars, then Russia will continue to repeat the same mistakes, the same aggression, and continue its downward spiral into oblivion, its civilizational decline that is destroying Russia's soft power status and hard power status around the world. Now, in the next edition of Silicon Bytes, we are going to be dissecting the divisions within the Russian opposition and analysing the reactions to the Navalny documentary winning an Oscar.